Hello and welcome back to the fifth episode of The Ballot and uh, I'm joined here by Andrew Reynolds. Hello. And this is going to be the final episode of 2018, a year which was so tumultuous and turbulent when you think about it in a political sense, looking back to everything that happened in even just the UK, but also if you you think a bit more internationally to do with Russia, China, South Korea, North Korea, the USA, everyone just had something to pitch in this year. And there were so many stories just across the globe to to listen into and analyse. And obviously for the second half of this year as the ballot has ran, we've had a great pleasure in uh, talking about it and trying to explain really what's going on in a kind of non-patronising way and we've actually really enjoyed this half of the year for the ballot and we will obviously be continuing that further into 2018. Uh, We're kind of hoping for another crazy year. In this rather laid-back episode we're going to kind of summarise what's happened this year and we'll talk about several different corners of the world, a little review of what happened and then what we expect or what could happen in the coming 12 months in 2019 and a year that will see potentially Britain leave the European Union, it could see Trump be impeached, it could see World War III the way that we're going right now. But we'll start in the UK, we'll start at home and obviously the topic which dominated our radios, our TVs, our magazines, our newspapers this year was Brexit. So what were some of the main points for you this year, Andrew? Well, we saw some huge developments this year around Brexit. We saw Theresa May finally propose her checkers plan to all of her cabinet ministers and it seemed to go down all right initially before Boris Johnson resigned and we saw some tumult amongst um, conservative backbenchers and amongst the opposition. After a while she eventually proposed her deal and um, very quickly tried to convince the MPs around the House to vote for it before deciding, you know what, we're not going to vote on it on the 10th of December, we're going to vote on it in January 2019, because I don't think enough people support my bill. And over the course of her proposing her bill, and like MPs becoming aware of what she, what her plan was, we saw her sort of have a no-confidence vote by Jacob Rees-Mogg and other members, other Conservative backbenchers who were more um, right-wing, right-wing and um, extreme in their sort of views around Brexit than she was. Theresa May has survived so many incidents over the past year and many times where we thought she had to go, she's messed up in some way, but she's always managed to just about claw back, whether that's because of a sense of urgency around the specific situation we're in, around sort of Brexit, whether that's around the opposition not capitalising on that or whatever. Theresa May continues to soldier on, but the question remains for how much longer. So she's held on to the role of Prime Minister this year so many times. There must have been three or four. I mean, some people thought there, there was, they could have, she could have lost her job in any of the 12 months, but there were probably three or four times when it really came down to the crunch. And, you know, of course, she had that no-confidence vote where many members of the Conservative Party disagreed with her, didn't have confidence in her, and even fledged a no-confidence vote, which is something quite, you know, it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite an event mm-hmm. in Parliament. And we've seen it from the Conservative side. We've seen it how her cabinet is, has crumbled in some cases. Some people, like I said, have been so, have had, have lost confidence in her and they've actually resigned in protest of this. But how has it come across on the other side of the benches? What has the opinion been in the Labour camp, in the opposition this year? 
Well, previously in the ballot, you may have noticed that um, Jer- we've said that Jeremy Corbyn had a bit of an ambiguous position as opposed to Brexit. He has continued that to a degree. We saw earlier this year the party conferences, and they're all very interesting to watch. Theresa May's previous party conference was a disaster, and she managed to patch things up to a degree this time. On the contrary, Jeremy Corbyn's one, whilst um, the very usual thing where people applauded him and many of his core supporters were still happy with him, we understand that the vast majority of the Labour membership is still very pro-EU, and many of him, his members, particularly young members, tried to force um, the Labour Party higher-ups to back a second referendum. We saw many cabinet ministers, well, shadow cabinet ministers rather, such as Keir Starmer and even John McDonnell to a certain extent, embrace the idea of a second referendum, although Jeremy Corbyn has changed his tune slightly. He talks about a people's Brexit, a workers' Brexit rather, but he's consistently said that he favours a general election over uh, a second referendum with the idea that if he gained power, he could then renegotiate with the EU in three months or whatever, far better than perhaps uh, Theresa May has. And if that failed, then perhaps he would embrace a second referendum. So it seems like pressure's mounting on Jeremy Corbyn to take a stand and move towards a more remain position, but as to whether or not he'll do that is uncertain. Whatever the new year brings and whatever happens with regards to the withdrawal agreement, I think he'll be pushed to make a decision about what sort of Brexit he wants their party to try to push for. Yeah, he's kind of been stuck between a rock and a hard place for a lot of it because his party, obviously, very much is a a pro-EU party. Like you said, a lot of people want to even make that kind of official that they want to take that stance to support a second referendum, like, for instance, the Liberal Democrats have done in the past. But he's stuck between that side of his cabinet and his and his friends in the Labour Party, but also has personal differences, which he, he has alluded to a lot in the past, where he is rather mm. pro-Brexit. He even said a few weeks ago, if he was in power, Brexit would still happen. So how do you see the next 12 months going for both parties, for the Conservatives and for Labour? So we're voting in this, or the week beginning the 14th of January. Now, I think there's two ways to look at this. You can look at the views of the MPs, whereby most MPs are generally pro-Remain. Two-thirds of MPs are pro- were pro-Remain during the referendum, and that's changed to a degree, but not heavily. So most MPs will want to avoid a no-deal Brexit and are trying to pu- push towards some sort of soft alignment with the EU because they understand, uh, well, they want a sort of some form of alignment, either be a Norway plus deal that some like Nick Bowles and some other Conservative backbenchers are pushing for, whether it be uh, a sort of a custom style arrangement or a checkers deal, which a large contingent are still supporting. It's uncertain and there are some extremes uh, in the back who support a sort of clean, no-deal Brexit. Um, amongst Labour MPs, it's a lot more ambiguous, as I said, with Jeremy Corbyn. Some, because some are trying to balance the official party position with their own deeply held beliefs. Some, like Kate Howie, are actually no-deal Brexit Brexiteers, but they're Labour members. There are a smaller number of them than they are actually Tory MPs, but they're still present because you have to remember that although most people who support Jeremy Corbyn and voted for him and a lot of his community are sort of young and pro-Remain, a lot of Jeremy Corbyn's MPs hold seats in leave-voting working-class constituencies. So there is some um, unease around the idea of fully embracing a pro-Remain argument. Fundamentally, this um, withdrawal agreement in general will only be voted on by MPs. It doesn't really matter what the public really thinks, which is why it was peculiar earlier on in the year when she initially proposed her deal to be voted on in the 10th or so of January, not January, 10th or so of December before she delayed it, that she decided to tour Glasgow. She decided to tour many areas of the country and reassure workers that her Brexit deal was best for Britain. Didn't seem to make a good deal of sense trying to convince the public when she herself doesn't, do not, does not want a second referendum and is proposing a bill that will only be voted on by MPs. 
um, as I said, there's another way to look at this. It's through looking at the views of the people. I said earlier on about how uh, working class constituencies might lead towards leaving many uh, work many labour areas, but support of a people's vote has gone pretty much from obscurity to being widely held as a viable option in many areas. So as to whether or not that movement will develop and continue to put pressure on MPs to embrace it, like you have Tory MPs like Anna Soubry embracing it, and many parties like Liberal Democrats pushing for it, or whether or not it will remain a fringe movement which has no real relevancy to more mainstream British politics is up for debate. And I think the opinions of the public will prove vital in what happens, not just beforehand, but I think essentially in the aftermath of if this deal fails, which seems likely at the moment, you might see Theresa May either pushing MPs and testing their views on different topics, as she actually mentioned earlier on in the year, or um, we might see some the sort of the views of the public dictate what MPs feel as though they should do. But uh, all that remains to be seen. Anything could really happen at this point. Mm-hmm. So that has dominated a lot of what we've talked about in this podcast, what people have talked about in other podcasts, in the news, but another, you know, another quite a tragic or quite a you know if we weren't in a year that was dominated by Brexit, i think it probably would have got a lot more i don't know i, I don't know how to say this but like obviously it got a lot of press what we're going to talk about but the salisbury attack i, th- I think it would have been it would have dominated airways for for months if we hadn't been in such a Brexit dominated year but of course um earlier this year ex-russian spy sergey skripal's daughter yulia were poisoned in salisbury where they now live and this led on to the further tragic death of Don Sturgis and the poison of her fiancé, I believe it was Charlie Rowley. These were attacks that Russia was accused of. It's never kind of came to an actual death, but they were accused of, with the two main culprits being Dr. Alexander Mishkin and Anatoly Chepiga. Uh, they were under aliases when they were in the country, but they were abu- they were accused of being the kind of the forerunners. Mm-hmm. And using these this agent, this poison against Sergei and Julius Gripal, which then fed into Don Sturgis, Charlie Rowley, and a, a policeman as well who was uh, on the scene when it happened. This was quite a, a shocking moment for international relations between Russia and kind of the rest of the world. There was mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, of course anger from UK but also France yeah. and this said something quite important I think about Russia's stance in the world it was very you know it was, it was such an explicit if it was mm-hmm. pretty much which the, the large majority of people think it is although it's obviously not been confirmed and I mm-hmm. kind of feel it never will be confirmed this was quite an explicit sign of Russia's power in the world right now so what has been their stance in the world politically over the last 12 months? Well, Russia has been been growing in significance in the mindset of many observers internationally. All the way back in the sort of Crimean intervention, we've seen a continuing escalation of tensions with regards to Russia's engagement in Syria, with her support of Bashar al-Assad, whether it's been with regards to intervention in US elections, which tensions have have, um, continued to mount, particularly around sort of Miller's investigation over in the US. And particularly with this in the UK, this is not Russia's first action in attacking a former spy or turncoat, as they would call it. Um, in the UK, they attacked and successfully murdered Alexander Litvinenko in the early 2000s with polonium. And there was very little um, retaliation to that, so Russia has since gone on and attempted 
but yeah, again and again to try and assassinate um, those who have acted against them or perceived to attack, betray their country. In this case, they went after the Skripals and were unsuccessful. Now, I think Russia as a country is trying to, and Vladimir Putin's regime anyway, is trying to exert some of the power that it's always tried to feel as though it has. Mm-hmm. As a country which used to be the USSR, they've tried to maintain um, foreign influence and have been successful to a degree, especially with regards to elections-wise and other such things. With regards to the sort of Salisbury incident, it caught the headlines because it was very brazen. It was in broad daylight. It was involved the poisoning of many UK citizens and the contamination of a small town. And I think truly the Prime Minister should have reacted perhaps harsher, but that's open for debate. And um, Russia may continue to, to act in a similar manner in the future. Putin reacted himself quite intriguingly to this. Initially he came out and said that oh he, that Russia was totally innocent and he brought out the two suspects who were later unveiled by um, the agency Bellingcat as to their true identities as opposed to the fake names they used and came up with a story that and Putin came up with a story that um, they were merely tourists here to come and see the Salisbury Cathedral <laughs> which was um, insulting it was seen by many observers as to like what actually occurred in Salisbury which was the murder of an innocent British person and um, he then changed his tune, accusing the Krippelpels of being traitors. And now, more recently, we've seen him actually purge the GRU and many other... As a former spymaster himself, he was probably embarrassed by the failure of the agency. The GRU and other agencies like the FSB being military intelligence agencies in Russia, somewhat similar to our MI5 and MI6, but um, obviously having different functions and um, operating in a different manner to how our organisations would. I think Russia's place in the world is rapidly changing and as it's emerging out of its sort of <clears throat> um, slumber, if it will, from experimenting with democracy at the beginning to now becoming under the sort of iron, almost authoritarian grasp of Vladimir Putin, we're seeing him go forward in Syria, we're seeing him go forward in many places as possible to exert Russian influence and try to undermine agencies like the EU and NATO. And there's been a lot of conversation between Russia's interesting relationship with the USA, because this is one that's always been rather toxic in years. Of course, you only have to think back to the Cold War to think about how it almost came to blows. But President Trump, these past 12 months, seemed to, or at least their relationship, seems to be changing from what it was historically. So what was their relationship, the two countries, in the past and how do you expect to, to change, well, or how has it changed in the last 12 months, and how do you expect that to continue? Well, previously, Russia and America were the, the big bad for one another. So in the US, we had the big bad being communism and Russia, and they were seen as the great enemy to the United States and to democracy. But over time, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, this has changed dramatically. With the rise of terrorism, it's become Islam or, or perceived terrorism, and Russia's fallen from popular US headlines as uh, antagonist, if you will. This is seen in many cases, like in Syria nowadays, the prime motivator of US intervention is to destroy Islamic terrorists, to shut down the Islamic State group and, or Daesh and other organisations, unless to stop Russian expansionism and their sort of sphere of influence. This has led um, Russia almost to pivot itself in the eyes of many observers. No longer is there a sort of a general view, overall view on Russia as being um, 
an antagonistic force, but rather now, from some observers, especially with the United States and the United States government particularly, they're being seen in a more neutral light. Putin himself has um, seemingly intervened in the US presidential elections with uh, an increasingly large amount of evidence mounting up that he either indirectly or directly influenced the result through interfering with either the Trump campaign or through use of online uh, bots or other forms of influencing um, voters. The reason he has intervened in such a way, especially with America, also with France and uh, Marie Le Pen, is because these sort of parties, these groups, have a more friendly relationship with the with Russia, and this has led to Trump now that he's in power, echoing what he said during his campaign trail. He has uh, repeatedly set voiced um, support for strong men like Vladimir Putin and praised his work. We saw earlier this year, perhaps last year, him meeting Putin at several points throughout the year, either at the G7 or G8, at the G20. And at and in Finland when he was doing a tour of the of the European Union, the G8 and or the G7 and the G20 being meetings of some of the most powerful economies and world powers. It's important to note that Russia now is um, changing significantly. As I said earlier, their powers they're trying to exert more power abroad, and this has um, led to them interfering in the U.S. in many many regards. As um. As a result of uh, these allegations that they've been interfering in the U.S. presidential election, an invest- a special counsel's investigation was set up by Robert Mueller, who a former director of the of FBI and the like, and he um, has been leading since pretty much the start of the U.S. of Donald Trump's uh, term an investigation into links between the Trump campaign and Russia, and links between officials in, in the Trump campaign and Russia, and this has been increasing in pace, I think, throughout the year with many individuals like Paul Manafort and many others being sent to jail. Now, Trump has taken this in many ways. He has continued tweeting about it relentlessly, and he has fired Jeff Sessions, one of the the US Attorney General, who oversees the investigation, and is trying to put in his own man, if you will. Now, as as to what will happen in 2019, as to whether or not the Miller investigation will come with anything credible, which could potentially um, indict or result in the possible impeachment of President Trump. It's debatable. We're not really sure yet. Anything could happen. Uh, We know from many observers that Miller's a very thorough investigator. And very recently we encountered evidence that um, some of the people indicted were in places they said they weren't. (laughs) So, for example, Paul Manafort, who said he wasn't in Serbia, uh, in Europe, talking with um, Russian intelligence officials. But in fact... His phone signal indicated that he wasn't in Europe at that time. As these um, pieces of evidence come forward, there'll be questions that will be asked. Did Trump campaign commit a crime? Did President Trump commit a crime? And more importantly, is it enough to result in his impeachment? And that is, that'll be questions that will continue to crop up over the course of the year to come. Do you think when we record the 2019 review episode, we'll be sitting with the same president we have now? <laughs> I wish I could just say, just just your opinion. Like, what what do you think of the actual chances hand, of being impeached? Because it's obviously such a rare. There thing. Are, has never really been a president impeached, mostly because we, even with Nixon, Nixon resigned before he could be impeached. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Impeachment proceedings were launched against Bill Clinton for having an affair with Monica Lewinsky, and he actually survived the impeachment proceedings. They never uh-huh. actually went anywhere. Now, obviously, these allegations are far more serious than a simple affair. They are far more serious than 
Some might argue the farmers here is the Watergate. They run. They run deeper than that. They yeah. run. They run deep. And don't forget, Watergate investigation took hundreds of days, of a far longer length than this current investigation has taken. So, it it very well could. Although we're seeing a very different Republican Party as to what we saw with in the year of Nixon, we're seeing it. This is earlier this year. John McCain passed away, who was very much seen as the face of the old Republican Party. He was just a senator who was replaced as holding up old values of nobility and sorts. But the Republican Party of the modern era has changed significantly under Trump to be more populist, which more protectionist, and to be more U.S. centric. I mean that by what I mean by that is that whereas previously the, the Republican Party would have focused on free trade and business, nowadays they focus on protectionism by hiking tariffs and these trade wars Trump has been pursuing. And I do think there's a good chance he could be impeached. I do think there's a very, very, very good chance that as the Democrats take control of the House of Representatives in the, in the new year and, it, and such, we could see the House of Representatives take more action and investigate more things. And this could lead to mounting pressures to what precisely the Trump campaign did during the US presidential election. I, I think it's likely, or at least there's a reasonable chance that we could see a new president, although I wouldn't pay any money on it. I think we're set up for another, you know, what could you say, another year of magnitude in, ter- in terms of politics. So. Just just a, a quick note to end this, because I understand we have gone on for a, a wee bit long, but we had quite a lot to cover. Why do you think this year's been so, you know, so filled, so crazy, you could say, with politics? Politics has been changing dramatically. Since the late 2000s, we saw our political movements shift dramatically. We saw the rise of Labour, new Labour, and sort of new movements around centrism, which were big tent parties, which got, tried to encapsulate all views of society and gain power through majority view. We saw this in Germany, in France, in the UK. And we're seeing a backlash to that in the 2010s. We're seeing a huge backlash to that. In the 2010s, um, we've seen parties move towards the extreme. As people seek populist answers, they seek extreme answers and alternate voices to tell them what the way forward is. In Italy, we've seen it with PEGA and more um, far-right-wing groups. In Germany, we've seen it with the rise of AFD, but also the Green Party, the left-wing party. In France, we saw the rise of Macron and alongside the rise of Marie Le Pen as well. In Britain, we've seen Brexit. We've also seen, in the US, Donald Trump rise. This has created a very febrile atmosphere where anything can really happen and people are looking for new voices. People no longer vote along lines of class. They no longer vote along lines to the same extent mm-hmm. that they used to. And they very much look for new answers and new ideas. Our technology nowadays feeds into that. We're seeing an atmosphere where I can access more information than I could have done in any other decade. There are many theories that, like, um, for example, um, WhatsApp groups used by politicians is <laughs> fed into a sort of almost feverish atmosphere amongst certain um, political societies. So, for example, um, the European Research Group and many of our Tory MPs have are members of WhatsApp groups together. And because they can now communicate in a much close, uh, closely knit fashion, they can... Um, coordinate themselves more yes but also it adds to certain tension amongst themselves there's often an atmosphere that anything could happen anyone could say anything that could spark anything which has which could you argue have led to the premature trig call by jacob reese mogg for uh, a leadership challenge technology and the changing face of politics won't diminish we're going to see in 2019 the role of technology change and continue but governments are going to have to come to terms with this new society and political parties are going to have to change and figure out what their position is in this new society. 
and how to proceed. And that just about sums up 2018 for the ballot. It's been a good six months. I've, I've really enjoyed doing it with you. So I've really enjoyed talking over a lot of subjects and just kind of getting to the nitty gritty. And a lot of the time explaining subjects. Obviously, I've been helped a, a great ton by Andrew Reynolds, my friend here. Um, and we've had a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of joy and a lot of success in just sometimes you need to just strip back a lot of topics. Oh, yeah. You need to just strip back and think, why is this happening? Even sometimes a little bit of history. Why is this happening? Who thinks this? Who thinks what? And it just gives, you know, people who listen, the great people who listen to our podcast, it can just sometimes give you a bit of perspective about what's actually happening. Why is it happening? Because I think sometimes in mainstream media, that can get lost. When people don't really have an idea. I think that's definitely the case with the youth, where people don't have a straightforward idea of what's actually happening in politics. And of course, politics is never straightforward, but we, we try and iron it out to the best of our abilities. But that sums us up for the year. Uh, we'll obviously be continuing it into 2019. We're going to be trying and ramp, ramp up the process. I'm always uh, continuing trying to trying to deal up a website for it. I, I ideally want it to be where, in the absence of episodes like this, you can have something to read, you can have some articles to read um, about different political events as they happen and we'll be trying to continue that and ramp that up in 2019. But when we know about developments with that, you'll know about developments with that. You can follow us on Twitter at Ballot Podcast, please do, and you can keep up with all the updates on the show as well, some political conversation usually chaired by the man sitting to my left. Uh, but I think that sums us up for the year. Thanks so much for listening to the few episodes we've produced this year and we hope to see you in 2019. Thanks a lot for listening.